you have a copy of God's Word, either a printed copy like I've got in my hand or a digital copy on your phone, let me encourage you to hold it up and repeat with me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Now turn with me in your Bible, your copy of God's Word, to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Now before we get into this particular passage this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. I want to remind you of two things. First of all, we're in a pause, an intermission, a seventh inning stretch in the book of Revelation. We find two of these in this book. We find the first one between the sixth and the seventh seal judgments. And then we find the second one right here between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgments. It's during these intermissions, these pauses, that God gives us a little more detail as to what is going on at a particular time. It is also during this time that God reminds us that he is a God of mercy that God is patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. But it's also a time that he reminds us that he is in control. He is on his throne. And even though the world may look like it is spiraling out of control, God is in control. The second thing I want to remind you of is that even though there is a certain chronological order in Revelation... Not everything that we read in chapters 4 through 19 are in chronological order. Uh, For instance, as we get to chapter 11, the things that we're going to read right now don't necessarily take place after the events of Revelation 8 and 9. What we're going to discover is that what is happening here actually takes place some before those events. And so as you're reading the book of Revelation, you need to understand there is an order. You have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments, the return of Christ, but not everything has a set order. Now as we get to chapter 11, we find ourselves at the midpoint of the tribulation and our focus in this chapter turns to the city of Jerusalem. And I believe that that much of the focus of the book of Revelation from this point on deals with the nation of Israel. Tim LaHaye in his book on Revelation says that chapter 11 deals with the spiritual life of Israel. And chapter 12 deals with the coming persecution of Israel. Now what amazes me is that even though during this time... You have had the witness of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. The majority of the people of Israel, the Jews, have not turned to the Messiah. But in the passage that we're going to look at today, we see them finally taking that step. Now as we look at these 13 verses, there are three very clear things that we see. How this chapter, how these verses kind of lay out. 
The first thing is we see a temple. The second thing we see is two witnesses. And the third thing we see is a terrible earthquake. Now, the first thing we learn is this. Early in the tribulation, a temple is going to be built in Jerusalem. Listen to what it says in verses 1 and 2. It says, Then I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, the very first thing John is told is to take a measuring stick, and he's told to measure the temple. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ezekiel, you know that Ezekiel was told to do something very similar in Ezekiel chapter 40 and following. He was told to measure the city, and he was told to measure the temple. Now, what you need to understand is that temple has always been a vital part of Jewish life. David, who is known as a man after God's own heart, wanted to build a temple for the glory of God, but God wouldn't let him. God wouldn't let him because he had blood on his hands. He was a warrior. And so God allowed him to raise the money. God allowed him to collect materials. But God did not allow him to build the temple. But he allowed his son Solomon to build, to construct this temple. And it was a beautiful site. We're told about it in 1 Kings chapter 8. And and when the people came together to dedicate this temple, the Bible says that the glory of God came down upon that temple. And the temple became the focal point of Jewish worship. But because of the Jewish people's sin, because of the rebellion against God, God allowed the city of Jerusalem And God allowed the temple in Jerusalem to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the the king of Babylon. That occurred around 587 B.C. The people were taken into exile. But because of God's grace, Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, later issued a decree. The decree allowed people to go back to Jerusalem, but it also allowed the temple to be constructed in Jerusalem as well. As a matter of fact, in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus says that he wants the people to build a temple to the glory of God, the maker of heaven and earth. And so Zerubbabel, the political leader, and Joshua, the high priest, uh, take on the task of rebuilding this temple, the second temple that the Jewish people had. But then that temple was desecrated. It was desecrated when Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the Grecian Syrian rulers, came in. And he he literally sacrificed a pig on the altar at the temple. That was the height of desecration. And we're told in the book of Daniel that, that that desecration was a picture of a desecration that was later to come during the time of the tribulation. Well, when Herod the Great became king, shortly before Jesus was born, he wanted to renovate and rebuild the temple and bring it back to its glorious days. And so he did, and we had Herod's temple, the temple that we read about in the New Testament. It was the temple that, that, that Jesus went to when, when he was talking to the religious leaders as a young boy. It was the temple that, that he chased the money changers out of. 
It was the temple that, that Peter and John, on their way into that temple, healed the, um, the man who was um, born lame and, um, and so that he could walk again. It was that temple that Jesus and his disciples grew to, to worship or began to worship God at. But that temple was destroyed. In 70 AD, Titus, the Roman general, came into Jerusalem. He, he destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, tells us one million Jews were killed. And they burned the temple of God to the ground. That's 70 AD. Now, when John was on that prison island called Patmos, it was about 96 AD. It was about 26 years after the temple had been destroyed. There was no temple in Jerusalem. And yet John has this vision of this temple. And he's told to go and measure this temple. Now what temple was it that John saw? It wasn't Solomon's temple. It wasn't Zerubbabel's temple. It wasn't Herod's temple. What temple was it? Well, the temple that John saw is a future temple. A temple that I believe will be built during the very first days of the tribulation. You see, the Bible makes it clear that a temple will be built in the future. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, Paul is telling us about the Antichrist and what he's doing in the last days. And in verse 4 it says, He, the Antichrist, will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. And so Paul tells us there is coming a day when the Antichrist will come into the temple of God and he will proclaim himself to be God. Now, when does that happen? Well, Daniel tells us. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, we're told about this covenant that the Antichrist makes with the Jewish people. And we're told at the halfway point of a seven-year covenant, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the Antichrist breaks that covenant and he commits a, an act of desecration in the temple. It says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, he, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, for seven years. In the middle of the seven, three and a half years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. He will stop the Jewish people from sacrificing and making offerings. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Jesus told us about that event in Matthew 24. In verse 15, he says, So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, what Daniel talked about in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, let the reader understand. And so we're told in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that a temple is going to be built sometime in the future in Jerusalem. There's not one right now. There hasn't been one for close to 2,000 years. But we're told that a temple will be rebuilt. Now there's an organization in Jerusalem today. It's called the Temple Institute. And if you go to their website, you will see that their ultimate goal is to see Israel rebuild the temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. 
And so there's an organization today of Jews who have as their primary goal to see that the temple is rebuilt on Mount Moriah, the place where Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, Herod's temple was, to see that temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. And today, the Temple Institute are constructing sacred vessels that will be used in that temple. Today, there are seamstresses at the Temple Institute that are sewing garments for the high priest to wear in that temple. And if you go to their website today, you will see that they are seeking to to breed red heifers so that they can offer them sacrifices in the temple. So understand, there are many Jews that are not only longing for, but they are planning for a temple to be built. But what you need to understand is there is a major obstacle that is keeping that from happening today. If you go to Jerusalem and you visit that city, you will discover that there is a building at the place where the temple used to be located. It's called the Dome of the Rock. It's called the Mosque of Omar. It is the third most holy site in all of Islam. And so it is a holy site for the Muslim people. Now you need to understand that Israel is a Jewish nation. And Jerusalem is a Jewish city. And yet, in the midst of this Jewish nation and this Jewish city, there are a number of Muslims. And you need to understand that that Israel is a Jewish nation surrounded by Muslim countries. And all of these Muslims see the Dome of the Rock, the Mosque of Omar, as one of their most holy sites. And if the Jews today decided that they were going to tear down the Dome of the Rock and build the temple, trust me, it would start World War III. And so something has to happen for the Jewish people to be able to have the opportunity to build this temple. And so what's going to happen? I believe what's going to happen is that covenant that is made between the Antichrist and the Jewish people. During that time of the covenant, he will give them the freedom to rebuild that temple. And for three and a half years, we're told in this passage, the Jewish people will begin worshiping again in the temple. They will be sacrificing in the temple. But what you need to understand is as they worship in the temple, as they offer their sacrifices in the temple, they are rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. They are rejecting the sacrifice that was made once and for all, we are told about in Hebrews chapter 9. And so for three and a half years, the Jewish people go back to sacrificing animals to take away their sin. And so the measuring stick that that, that John takes to the temple, measuring it, he's measuring it to show that it doesn't measure up. It doesn't meet the need. It stands in judgment. You'll notice that he doesn't only measure the temple, he measures the altar. And what he's telling us is even though the Jewish people are sacrificing and worshiping here, 
The Jewish temple stands in judgment because we're told that we are the temple of God. And we are told that Jesus made the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And so for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, this temple will be built and sacrifices will be offered by the Jewish people. At the midway point, the Antichrist is going to break that covenant and the nations are going to trample the holy city, Jerusalem, for the final three and a half years. And so a temple will be built in Jerusalem. The second thing we see here is for three and a half years, God's two witnesses will proclaim God's truth. Listen to what it says. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stood before the Lord of all the earth. We read about them in the book of Zechariah. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. When they complete their testimony, the beast will come up out of the bottomless pit. Now, let me stop there again. You need to hear what this is saying. It says, when they complete their testimony. If you underline things in your Bible, underline that. Write, circle that. That's important. It's not until they complete their testimony that the beast comes out of the bottomless pit, declares war on them, and will conquer them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom, and Egypt, the city where the Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to the world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the true prophets who tormented them. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them. And they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called the two prophets, come up here. And they rose up to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. Now in these verses, we meet these two witnesses. And these two witnesses have great power. Power that we don't see today. Supernatural power. I mean, they have power to have fire shoot from their mouths and destroy their enemies. I haven't seen that. Have you? They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it doesn't rain. They have the power to turn the water into blood. They have the power to bring any plagues they want to on the earth for as long as they want. Now let me remind you, these two witnesses are witnessing during the first half of the tribulation. In the first half of the tribulation, we read about the seal judgments. One of the things that we read about in the seal judgments is famine. There's a lack of food. What is one of the things that cause famine? Drought. They have the power to, to stop the rain from falling. They have the power to bring down plagues. What does one of the seals tell us will happen on the earth during this time? Plagues will fall upon the people of the earth. And so these two witnesses have supernatural power given to them by God. Now who are they? 
There's a lot of speculation. Some say they're Elijah and Moses because in Malachi 4 it says that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. It was Elijah that caused the, the, the heavens to, um, to not um, rain. It was Moses that caused the water to turn to blood. So there's some that say that it was Moses and Elijah. Some say that it was Elijah and Enoch because these are two in the Old Testament who never died. They were just translated up into heaven. So some say that it was those two men. Others say there were other people. And to be honest with you, I have my thought on who they are, but it really doesn't matter. What really matters is what they do. For three and a half years, they prophesy in the streets of Jerusalem that judgment is coming. And they are urging the people of the world to repent of their sins. They're wearing burlap, sackcloth, which was the dress of a prophet that causes calls people to repent. Do you remember John the Baptist wore sackcloth and he came out of the wilderness saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And notice what God calls him. He calls him olive trees and lampstands. Lampstands give light to the world. Olive trees, two things, they're fruitful, but also it's olive trees that give us olives where the oil comes from that is used for anointing, that is used for lighting the lamps. In the Old Testament, oil is often symbolic of the Holy Spirit of God. I believe when it calls them olive trees and lampstands, it's telling us that these two men are supernaturally empowered by the Spirit of God. And for three and a half years, they give testimony to the light of the world. And the Bible says that these two men are invincible as they confront wickedness. They have the power to protect themselves, supernatural power. No one can touch them until their testimony is complete. Understand, these two men, they're invincible. They're immortal until they finish the task that God gives them to do. And yet, listen. I believe the same thing can be said for each of us today. The Bible says that God has the length of our days written in his book. Our days are already numbered. You don't determine how long you will live. God does. And I know that bothers us who are health conscious. I know that bothers us who are in the medical field. But, but understand if the Bible is true, it says that God is the one who determines our days. God does. Now, does that mean that you need to leave here today and go buy a dozen Krispy Kremes, nuke them in your microwave, and eat them on the way home? No. Doesn't mean that. Because you can determine the quality of your life. And I'm here to tell you, you eat 12 Krispy Kremes on the way home, the quality of your life isn't going to be very good. You're probably going to go into a diabetic coma. That's what you're going to do. And so understand, these two men were invincible, immortal, until they had done what God told them to do. Lottie Moon, that great Southern Baptist missionary woman, believed that. This is what she said. She said, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal till my work is done. Jim Elliott, the, that missionary who was martyred, for this faith said this, remember, you are immortal 
until your work is done. But don't let the sands of time get into the eyes of your vision to reach those who still sit in darkness. They simply must hear. So God's word tells us that as long as we're completing God's task, God will keep us here until we have completed the task he has given us. Now in verse 7, we're introduced to the Antichrist. He is called the beast. And we read about him much more in chapter 13 and following. But I want you to notice something. It's not until these two witnesses complete their task that the Antichrist can kill them. Understand, the powers of hell cannot stop you from doing what God has called you to do if you're walking with him. Now, now the city, Jerusalem, is called Sodom. Sodom was the wickedest city in all of the Bible. It's called Egypt, which was the place that put God's people into slavery and oppressed them. And so Jerusalem had become a wicked place. These two prophets were not even given a decent burial. We are told that the entire world sees them lying dead on the streets. How do they do that? Well, goodness gracious, TV, YouTube, smartphones. I mean, you can take your phone out right now. And I, occasionally I see people during worship or other times take their phone out. And they're, you know, broadcasting what we're doing in here. I mean, through Facebook and social media, everybody can see everything that is going on every place in the world. And so everybody in the world are going to see these two prophets. And you know what the Bible says? The people of the world are celebrating their death. Because these two prophets had tormented them. They even give gifts to one another. It's an anti-Christmas. Where they are celebrating the fact that they finally won, they thought. God's prophets are defeated. We have finally come out on top. But while their two bodies were laying in the streets of Jerusalem decaying, God breathed life into them. Raised them back to life and then brought them to heaven to be with him. And so we see these two witnesses who for three and a half years give testimony to the world. Repent and turn to God. But there's a third thing we see in verse 13. And that is because of the testimony of these two witnesses... And the destruction that comes from a terrible earthquake, the Jewish remnant repent and give glory to God. Notice what it says in verse 13. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That phrase, everyone else, in some translations is translated remnant. And the remnant were terrified. The word there is phobias, which is the word that is used every time that we are told to fear God. I believe what this passage is saying is that a remnant of the Jews feared God and they began to give glory to him. Now, there are some of you here today that have a problem with fearing God. I understand that. You say God is a God of love and God is a God of love. Apart from God's love and God's mercy and God's grace, none of us in this room would ever have a chance at eternal life. You deserve death and hell. I deserve death and hell. We all do. We have rebelled against our creator. 
We have gone our way rather than his way, not once, but over and over again. We don't deserve heaven. We deserve hell. But because God is a God of love and mercy and grace, he offers us a gift, forgiveness in heaven. But God is not only love. God is just. God is righteous. God is holy. And the Bible makes it clear that God will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Did you hear that? And you need to understand that throughout the word of God, we are told that salvation begins when we fear God. When we come to an understanding of who he is, his holiness and his righteousness, and then all of a sudden we experience his love. And our life has changed. And I believe that's what happens here. I've got to tell you, I think I'm probably in the minority here. I don't think most people interpret this passage this way, but, but for me it's, it's crystal clear. George Ladd said this about this passage. He said, Because of these mighty acts of God in the end time, the Jewish people will repent of their sin and give glory to the true God. A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, said about this phrase in this verse, it represents a general movement toward Christianity, induced by fear or despair. William Barclay said, the great interest of this passage lies in the fact that the unbelievers were one by the sacrificial death of the witnesses, by God's vindication of them. I believe when they saw God at work, a remnant finally turned to the Lord and began to follow him. And we see that in chapter 12 as God's divine protection is part of them. And you need to understand that when the Bible says in Isaiah 9 that all of Israel will be saved, the Old Testament makes it clear that all Israel is always a remnant. Everyone that is a Jew by ethnicity is not a Jew by relationship. There's always a remnant that God has a relationship with. We see that among the Jewish people. And I believe that's how it is in the church today. You see, the church isn't made up of everyone that's here on Sunday morning. The church is made up of those who have been born again. Those who, through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, have repented of their sins, placed their trust in Jesus, and surrendered their lives to his control. And the fact of the matter is, there are many people who are in church Sunday after Sunday who have never done that. Oh, they may have prayed a prayer. They may have got dunked in water. Their names may be written in a church roll, but they've never had a life-changing experience with Jesus. They're not part of the remnant. And the worst thing in the world would be for Jesus to come back. And we think we're ready. And we're not. But I believe with all my heart that God is gracious God doesn't want that to happen to any of us. And that's why I believe his Holy Spirit convicts us and lets us know deep down in our heart of hearts whether we really know him or not. And so I'd ask you this morning, do you know him? 
Because what we're reading about and studying in the book of Revelation will happen. The rapture is going to happen. The wrath of God is going to take place. And then Jesus is going to return and set up his kingdom. Are you ready? If you're not, you need to get ready. We are moving quickly toward the events of Revelation. The rapture could occur any day. And all that we read about begins to happen. Are you ready? I want you to bow your head. Close your eyes. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed, I want to ask you, if you're here and you're not ready, you know that you've never truly given your life to Jesus, but today you want to make that kind of commitment to him, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer right now with a humble and sincere heart. Dear God, I humbly come to you today admitting that I'm a sinner. I've been living as if I lived on the throne. I was God. I've been living my way. Forgive me. I don't want to live that way anymore. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the grave, defeating sin and death for me. Today, I'm asking you to save me. I'm giving my life to you. Whatever you want me to do, I want to do. Fill me with your spirit. Make me brand new. For the rest of my life, I want to follow you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Amen.